you know, I always have people ask me if they're new, hey, how do I get involved? What, how, what's ways I can serve me part of the community? And it just occurred to me as I was listening to the announcements, man, there were just three wonderful opportunities just thrown right to the numbers there. So, you know, if you're new and you're looking for ways to connect, I always find if you're in a church, the way to find out and be part of the community is just serve where the need is. You know, don't wait for the grand opportunity like we need you to be our coffee taster or something like that. Just where there's need, plug in and you start to meet and get to know wonderful people in the church. And so this morning, we just, you know, threw out three needs and you might think, well, that was kind of heavy. I mean, you're always asking for help and, and that's actually a good sign, you know, uh, like, our, our children's ministry, so they're just, uh, Larry talked about opening up another class. This is because there's just too many kids in that one class, and now we've got to open that up and open up a new class. And what that means, though, is that there's just more help that's needed for that, right? So we've got to come to the body and say, hey, we need help out there. Or this weekend, we have our first conference in biblical counseling. We have over 220 people registered. They're going to be coming to this campus. So we need help just setting it up and serving those people. Uh, we're going to have a lot of people from our church, but we're going to have a lot of people from churches as far away as near Santa Monica. So coming to this conference. Um, what was the other one that they talked about? Children's Ministry. Awana. I just, man, having these kids coming, not only our kids, but this is a wonderful opportunity and outreach to a lot of families, many of whom don't even go to church. So if you're looking for a way to serve, there's just opportunities are, are, are abounding. Now, the other way you can think about these kinds of we need help kinds of things is sometimes, and thankfully this is not happening here, but this is a result of some, in some churches, many churches, the numbers are diminishing and the, the, the needs are increasing for those who remain. As a matter of fact, probably for the last decade or so, at least a solid decade, sociologists have been, have been monitoring and watching this trend, and the, the name of the trend that they've called it is the, the trend of the unchurched believer, the unchurched believer. Uh, it, it used to be assumed and just simply natural that if you claim to be a Christian, you would in fact be a part, a, 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 an integral part of a church. In fact, up until the late 1800s and early 1900s, no one, no one who, who said that they were a Christian would have even conceived of their Christian life without being part of a, 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 a local church, without playing some kind of fundamental or essential role. They would not have even conceived of Christianity without the church. Well, today, as you all well know, that has dramatically changed. More and more people who claim a profession or allegiance to Jesus Christ view the church very differently. Now, some of them just view it as just an, an option that's open to them to take or not take. Uh, some of them do see the church as a helpful tool, but some of them would actually even say that the church can be a hindrance to true spiritual growth. And this phenomenon is even happening amongst committed evangelicals who will see the church and still value the church, but see it as a relative priority, not an absolute priority. And what I mean by that is that they see the church as a very good thing, but kind of on the, the, the level that they might view or think of their favorite uh, Bible radio teacher or a podcast that they might listen to or their favorite place to pray. It's good when you got it, but not so big a deal when you don't. This is dramatically different than things have been in the past. In a recent poll, the question was asked, do you think that a person can be a faithful and good Christian if he or she doesn't attend church? 88% of those who do not attend a church said yes, but so did 70% that do. 
It's pretty shocking. So we would expect that the, the 88% or the people who are not going to church are going to answer, yeah, you can still be a faithful Christian and not be a part of a church, but 70% that attend agree with the same statement. Now, there's a lot of reasons for their shift in American culture. Now, a couple of them might be is Americans, we are just independent by nature. That's who we are. That's in our DNA. Secondly, um, there is a trend nationwide that people tend to increasingly separate their spirituality or spiritual life, whatever spirituality that might be, from the real life of every day. So there's, just, there's this kind of demarcation between the secular and the sacred. A third reason is the um, well-publicized scandals have just rocked the church. I remember I, I became a believer in the 80s. That was the height of all the scandals that were going on, and it was a, a lot of times it was in the Protestant church and most recently in the Catholic church. So all these publicized scandals have understandably left people feeling, have a bad taste of the church in their mouth. And then fourth and finally, there's this general kind of a cynicism in our culture towards any kind of authority or organized institution, and, and certainly the church is one of those. But, but this believing without belonging, this, this faith without fellowship kind of mentality that's spreading through the fabric of our culture is more reflective of a Western secularized individuality than the kind of Christianity we see written particularly all through the New Testament, and certainly not the kind of Christianity that we have inherited for the past two millennia. This is radically different. Now, for most of us, because we grew up in the last, you know, five, six centuries, we don't know any different. But if you spend any time reading church history, reading even things like the diaries of former uh, pastors or Puritans, and I know no one's going to do this, but maybe like the minutes of old churches, right, church meetings, you realize, wow, things are radically different today. So this not only reflects more of a Western secularized individuality than Scripture, it also reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel and its implications for our lives. You know, from the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, God declared that it was not good, not good for humanity to be alone. And so we see in Genesis chapter 2, God sees this scenario and does something about it, but we understand the divine design for human flourishing was that people would be in relationships that in certain degrees reflect the love of the Trinity, and that was way, the way humans would flourish in relationship. We see that all the way from Genesis chapter 2. Now, the rescue plan of God that we've been talking about for several weeks together would not simply fix the vertical relationship between God and us, but it would fix the horizontal relationship from man to man. You see, as the work of Christ restores and redeems us and puts us back in relationship with God, as the Holy Spirit puts us in union with Christ so that what is true of Christ is also true of us, this is what we've talked about for three weeks, we would be now placed in a new community, and that's what the Bible calls the church. Those saved by God's grace and united with Christ by His Spirit, we become the embodiment of the gospel message itself. Not only is this primary throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in the New Testament. Now, you don't have to change, go to Acts because I asked you to go to Romans, but let me read to you two important verses from the book of Acts. Book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 47 writes, reads this, and they, the disciples, the, the, this is Acts chapter 2 when Peter is proclaiming the gospel. You have to realize what's happening here. Just 
hours, a day before, this few days, Christianity was wiped out, snuffed, the light of the gospel extinguished. There was no hope here. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything changed, and Peter, the Holy Spirit descends, uh, Peter preaches this message, and 3,000 people uh, just get convicted. They say, hey, how do we get in on this? How do we become one of you? What do we need to do? Okay, that's what's happening. So Peter, so, so Luke is recording this, and they, these disciples, here's the phrase, devoted themselves. 3,000 people. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These thousands of converts heard the gospel and they, they wanted to be a part of what was going on. And they devoted themselves. Notice they didn't individually and privately go back to their homes to commune with God. It wasn't just me and God and, and Khalil's Starbucks or something, Khalil's coffee shop. It was, hey, I've got to be a part of the church. What is going on? I need to be part of this. There was no sense of just me and God, and that's it. They devoted themselves to one another. Now, admittedly, admittedly, it's hard for us to see the connections, the direct connections between the gospel, which is often so private and personal, to the church, which is obviously by its nature communal and public. And so we have a hard time seeing the connections. And while there's a lot to be said on the church, right, like any other doctrine, and there's huge things, we're just going to focus our time this morning on how the church is the embodiment of the gospel such that you really cannot have one without the other. In other words, as the gospel creates the church, the church proclaims the gospel, and it can't happen any other way. The two are fundamentally linked together. Now, in order to do that this morning, we need to understand two fundamental realities of the church. Number one, the nature of the church, and number two, the marks of the church. So, more specifically, the nature of the church as a result of the gospel, and the marks of the church as the visible proclamation of the gospel. Okay, we'll have those up on the slide, so you don't need to write those down real quick. So, what I'm hoping by the time we end our time this morning, you're going to have an appreciation of two things. Number one, the communal nature of Christianity. It is not just you and Jesus and that's it. There is a communal aspect that is fundamental to what, how Christianity just works. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, how baptism and communion mark off the boundaries of this communal life together. So let me just address this. I know the first one seems pretty, okay, I'm into that, but <laughs> baptism and communion, really? What's so exciting about that? We're going to see how something so familiar to us is actually really significant in how the church is set up. So let's look at them one at a time, the nature of the church as a result of the gospel. The word the New Testament uses to, to mention the church is the Greek word ekklesia. It means uh, gathering, uh, congregation. It can have a technical sense of the called ones. So the church is a gathering or an assembly of the ones that are called. So the natural question is, called? called from what, called to what, right? That's an obvious question. Well, the answer to that is called out of the world to the Lord. And the way we know that is the way this word is constantly used in the Bible. The first time this concept appears is in the, uh, it's in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm hedging here. 
the concept actually appears earlier in the Bible, but where it's used this technical way is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, God is creating the nation of Israel, and He tells Moses, gather all the people of Israel to me so that they might hear my words, live and obey. So, God is telling Moses, get all the people together, and what are they going to do? They're going to hear my words, and they're going to listen to them, and they're going to obey, and they're going to live, right? That word there in Deuteronomy 4.10 is the same word that is translated church throughout the New Testament. So, the church is the people of God that have been called out of the world to hear, to live, and respond to Him. And in the Old Testament, that was the nation of Israel, right? In the New Testament, that is anyone, all of humanity, regardless of nation or ethnicity, that recognizes that God's plan in Jesus as the great rescue, God's plan in Jesus, as I said, is the great reset of humanity, can be part of the church, the people of God. Now, if you were here for the last three weeks, let me connect some of the dots for you. Because while these sermons have been kind of independent, they're all actually part of one grand narrative, right? So the church comprises all individuals who have trusted in God's plan of rescue and been made right with Him. The biblical phrase there is justified by faith. I'll explain that in a little bit. So the church comprises everybody who have been made right with God because of what God has done. He's justified us by faith, and as a result of that work and what Jesus did has placed us in union in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we're this amazing new humanity, and the church is what's given birth from that. Now, I want you to go to Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 26. Uh, and then we're going to, so we're going to talk about how we are justified, and then we're going to talk about how we're put in Christ. This is all by way of review for the most part. So, uh, Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, that, that just sounds, let's talk about this phrase by phrase, because so, this is one of the most poignant passages of Romans. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. What Paul's actually saying is, I mean, this is just mind-blowing, friends, because we all know <laughs> we are not righteous. Now, sometimes we might think we are, but let's be honest, we know we're not righteous. You can think back this week, things you have done, things you have not done, things you have thought that were far from being righteous. That's the problem of humanity. We're just, we're wrecked by our sinfulness. What Paul is saying here, he's not just talking about God's, like the righteousness that God has. In other words, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, he's saying God's righteousness can be available to everybody who believes. The very righteousness that describes God, his own righteousness is available to everyone who believes. For, back to Romans, for there's no distinction God's not going to make a distinction because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all these can be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, the work that He's done. We've talked about this for the last two weeks. Who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This part gets meaty. This was to show God's righteousness. What was this? This, the gospel work, Jesus coming and living a perfect life, Jesus dying on the cross, all of this was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, God had passed over the former sins. He had had allowed humanity to sin against him, and he put up with it because he knew he was going to have an accounting. He knew the price of sin was going to be paid, and his son was going to pay it. So he forbear these sins, and when Jesus came, he, all of the judgment of sin came upon Jesus. It was to show, what's the it there? The whole gospel, God's righteousness at the present time, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the gospel story. Here's the problem. Holy God, we talked about that. Unholy creation, holy God, unholy creation cannot go together. If we were to be in the presence of God in our sin, we'd be smoked, man, wiped out. And God has a dilemma. Unholy creation whom He loves, whom He cherishes and values and cares for. How can this dilemma be resolved? He can make them holy because His Son lived the perfect life, lived up to the commands and demands of the law, and was perfect and yet offered His life as a sacrifice to make up and pay for the sins of all humanity. Guys, and I'm pulling in from the weeks we've studied together, and because he was very God of very God, his sacrifice was sufficient for the magnitude of the sin. But here's the great thing then. God, single-handedly in the sacrifice of Jesus, is still just because he upheld the law as he justifies the sinner. So his righteous demand and his love are met in Christ. And Paul says, here's the radical reality of it. Because of that faith in Jesus, we are made righteous, the very righteousness of God you can have through faith. Dude, that's, I just called you all dude, sorry. (laughs) It's just mind-blowing. That's what Paul's saying. The righteousness of God himself is for anyone. All are in this mess. And so God made a path for everybody. They could be the righteousness of God. So that's how we are made right, justified by faith. And then, you don't have to turn there, John 14, 20. Remember Jesus, we talked about this last week. Jesus says, in that day you will know me, that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. We are in Christ. How's that happen? John answers that in 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we are in Him, and abide in Him, and He is in us, because He gave us of His Spirit. This is the things we've been talking about for the last three or four weeks. What this means, friends, is that the church comprises all believers from all time, all cultures, all languages, all continent, all nations. That's the universal church. That's the church that all Christians are part of. But the Bible also teaches that there is a local church of a particular people in a particular time in a particular situation of a particular language and culture. And everyone who is in the church, both universal and local, are there because of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His work. See, that's how the gospel creates the church. The gospel creates the church. Every individual comes alone to God. But in coming to God, we do not remain alone. We are simultaneously made right with God and grafted in into this corporate body of believers called the church. Now, ironically, though, it is at this point, this understanding of the church that causes people to misunderstand the church. What I mean is that this, is that they understand that we're grafted into the church, the universal church, 
but then they forget to realize that to be in the church entails that we're also part of the church, right? If you're in the church, it has to be displayed in your involvement and love for the church. In order to be in the church, you have to be in the church. It works both ways. You can't have one without the other. And people misunderstand, and they they reason incorrectly on this. So they say things like, well, you know, since I'm part of the universal church, I'm part of what God is doing, I actually have no obligation or responsibility to, you know, this local church. Why would I want to get involved in the messiness and all that stuff of sinners? And you might have heard that. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. You know, that would be as crazy as if your son or daughter or your mother or father or your aunt or uncle sitting around the dinner table one night announced, you know, since I'm part of the universal human family, I just have no more obligation or responsibility to you all. Well, what would you think about that? You would say that they were out of their mind. But yet we do that with the church. We reason the same way. I'm part of the universal church, so I don't have any obligation to the local church. I'm part of the universal family, but I have no obligation to my biological family. You would get a a whooping if you said that to your family. But yet, why do we let so many Christians say the same when the Bible says we're family? When the Bible says you're actually a body, interconnected, Take a look at that, as a matter of fact, the image of a body. Now, the Bible uses a couple images to show this uh, inner dependency, inner connectivity, but we're only going to look at two. The first one's found in Romans chapter 12. It's the image of a body. Paul writes this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. You see, this this really common abstract metaphor of the body is made most clear only in the context of a local church where the people gather for one purpose, to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ and in so doing, build each other up in the faith. And and that's the way things work. If If your eyes are just open looking around here, that's the way this body, this church functions. And, and Paul goes on to talk about different giftings in Romans 12 because all of us aren't going to do the same thing. We're not all an eye. We're not all an ear. Some are called to teach. Some are called to sing. Some are called to play. Some are called to work with our young people. Some are called to work with seniors. Some are called to hospitality. We all have different ways we serve, but individually we serve for the greater good of the whole. And it takes all parts of the body working together, without which it's a train wreck. I mean, have you ever had that experience at night sleeping on your arm and then you wake up and try to move that, right? It's like a side of beef. You're like, okay, you know what I mean? But, but that's kind of what happens when people say, I just don't have to be a part of this. I'm in the universal body, so I don't have to function practically as the hand or the, the voice or whatever. Paul says that's not the way it works. Secondly, Paul uses the image of a family. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, if I delay you may know how one ought to behave, here's the phrase, look at this, in the household of God, which is the church. Isn't that amazing? He says the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And we don't have time to get into these other descriptors, but the pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, all through what's called the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Paul is constantly talking about the church, not in terms of of, of structure and function, but in relationships. 
older and younger, to view each other as sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. It's all relational language. Think about it. If you are adopted in Christ, right, and, and, and brought near to God, and you are now a son or daughter of the King, that means, obviously, that everyone else who've had the same experience adopted by God, a son or daughter, is now brother, sister, is now family. Can you imagine somebody in your family saying, I have no obligation to this family unit because I'm part of the universal human family? But yet so often people do that with the church. And usually it doesn't, it doesn't, what you're not having there is you don't have someone say, since I'm part of the human family, I don't have any responsibility or obligation to you all. They, they never mean everybody has, a, I have an obligation and responsibility, and they deserve all my affection and attention. That's not what they mean. They usually mean they get to pick and choose, right? But, but the excuse to say you love everyone generally is really just an excuse to say you don't have to love anybody specifically, and that's usually what's going on. So it sounds pious. It sounds holy. Why do I have to be a part of a church? I'm part of the church. It sounds great, but in reality, what it really means is I don't have to actually love people specifically. And that's easy to say. And that's why saying you love the church is easy. Actually, being a part of a church is a whole nother level. Because that's where the realities of our lives bump up and we have to work through our issues and differences. But when you have that, it's glorious. You know, Paul was writing to local churches when he used these metaphors. The churches at Rome, the churches at Ephesus. Next time we have people that say, I don't have to be part of a local church and part of the universal church, just take them to Romans and Ephesus. So the nature of the church, the nature of the church is a gathering of the redeemed of humanity through the work of Christ, united in Christ to be a body and family of Christ created by the gospel and to our second point this morning, entered into and sustained by the gospel for the express purpose of proclaiming the gospel corporately with our lives together. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, that's the second point, marks of the church as a proclamation of the gospel. We do this thing through uniquely through two symbols that we're all very familiar with, probably symbols that we're too familiar with, and that is baptism and communion. So what I need to do is talk about the theological importance of these two things and then tease out the practical application why they're so significant. The early church father Augustine said, wherever you have the preaching of the gospel and the ordinances of baptism and communion, there you have the visible words of the gospel because they all speak to the sacrificial death, uh, our union with Him, the new life we have in Christ, and His glorious second coming. They're not only heard, but they are also seen and experienced because we eat, we drink, we're washed by these. So what does this mean? So right now I need you to go to Romans chapter 6. So hopefully you're there. Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 where Paul talks about baptism. Now, baptism was in, in the first century the ver, very first sign of a convert to Christianity because it, was, it had such rich symbolism, particularly where did Christianity arise? In the arid desert areas of the Mediterranean, right? The Middle East. So, water and washing was such a vibrant, refreshing symbol. 
And, and baptism so beautifully captured how we're saying goodbye to our old life, that we're in the grave and being raised anew in Jesus Christ. So those earlier doctrines of justification and union with Christ, being washed clean and being new, we're all seen in baptism, right? So this is what Paul has having to say in Romans chapter 6. So verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is talking about is this massive significance that in baptism, it's like going into the waters, it's like going into the grave, and you're being raised in newness of life, and the water washes you clean. It says, that's exactly what happened when you became a Christian. You kind of, your, your old life was dead, you went into the grave, you were there with Christ, and then when He came up, you came up as well. And so when the church baptizes someone, we have in this baptismal tank. It is that church's recognition that that person is now part of the universal church. We're all recognizing that that's exactly what's taking place. That person's part of the universal church of God. And likewise, when someone uh, becomes an official member of a church or joins a local church, we are understanding and recognizing that just as that person's part of the universal church, now that they're lock arms with, locking arms with us, they're part of the local church, and that's very clear as well. So we have both of these going on, which is why in our baptism class and new memberships class, we actually have people talk, write out the gospel because we don't want them to think this is just a ritual, things we do. Because there's no, honestly, there's no like life having that happen. It's just a ritual. We do this all the time as Christians. We, uh, the Israelites did it all the time as well. We, we, we misunderstand the sign for the reality, right? So what we want to do is make sure, do you understand what the sign points to? That you're actually being made new in Christ. That your old life, it's dead. Like it went in the grave. And when you come out of the water, you're coming out in the likeness of Christ. Your sin's been washed clean. If this is just you think something your parents want you to do or you think you should do because you're part of a Christian church, you're not getting it. The same thing with, with the church membership. We want to talk about that because this recognizes you're part of the universal church. When you're part of a local church as a member, we're recognizing you're part of the local church. And you can't be part of the universal church, excuse me, you can't be part of the local church unless you're part of the universal church because they both go together. What about Communion. Well, it's similar to baptism because it's a public profession of faith, 
It's a public profession that you are part of the uh, redeemed people of God. You want to be a part of what God is doing, creating the new humanity. Communion, unlike baptism, though, is ongoing. Baptism is just one time, right? Because you only become once, you're in the kingdom with God, right? You're part of the church. But communion is an ongoing reminder to each and every one of us that we are sustained by the life and death of Christ. That's what communion is about. This is what Jesus intended. So I think I'm going to have them on the screens here. I'm not sure. Luke 22, 19, and, and Matthew 22 or 26. There we go. This is what Jesus said when he was instituting communion or the Lord's Supper, as we call it here. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what Jesus is saying here is you're, you're justified by faith. And he's pointing that directly to the practice of communion. But communion is also pointing to our union with Christ and our union with one another. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So Jesus is saying in communion, you are remembering that you're justified by faith and you're united to me and to one another. The practice of communion isn't something we just do first Sunday of the month. It is a reminder that my life is defined by the life and death of Christ. It is a reminder that our faith is sustained by what Christ has done. You see, baptism and communion, in a sense, they're like the bookends of entrance into what God is doing and ongoing relationship with that activity. They're not like baptism and communion are the awesome things we do and that's it. They're the signs that point to the reality of new regenerate life and transformation. And that's why every month we take of communion to remind ourselves, am I sustained by the life and death of Christ? Is that what's sustaining me, or is my career the thing that I find I get life from now? Is my popularity the thing that sustains me? Is having everything in my life work out the way I want the thing that sustains me? Or is my life sustained and fueled by the life and death of Christ? That's what's happening at communion. And when we come up to take that, we're saying it is. And it's evidenced by the way I'm living in community with you, first of all. Well, first of all, with my family, secondly, with you, and then thirdly, in the world around me. 1 Corinthians 11, most people know that passage. Later on, Paul says, do not take the, the meal, communion, in an unworthy manner. If you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with that. Most people take that verse to mean, if there's sin in my heart, I need to deal with that with God before I take communion, right? That's most, what most people interpret that. And that's a fine biblical concept, but that's not what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 11, 10 and 11. If you read the context, verse 17 to 33, and this is what's amazing, Paul is clearly rooting a right life with God is dependent upon relationships in the body of Christ. Okay, so I want to put a couple verses up there. Uh, there they are, as a matter of fact. So Paul says this, um, not my, where am I in my notes? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, there's that verse, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
So Paul is not saying don't take it in an unworthy manner. If you've sinned against the Lord, clear that up first. That's part of it. What Paul is saying is, how is it going with people in, your, in the body? Are there fractured relationships? Is there gossip? Is there pride? Is there division? Because the world is looking at the most visible expression of the gospel, that's the church. And if the church is jacked up, if the church is argumentative and gossiping and divisive and proud and sinful, they're not going to accept the gospel. They have no reason to because they see it where it's playing out and it's not working. And so Paul says, examine, discern the body. It's powerful. Christianity is not just about you and me and God alone. It's about us. So as we take communion, we're asking ourselves, are we living the kind of lives that reflect the redeemed community of the new humanity? That's what communion's about. So let me do this. Let me pull all these like crazy strands all over the place and try and bring it into a cohesive whole here, right? This is how this works. The gospel goes out into the world and people hear the message of a new humanity being made in Christ. People respond in faith and say, I want to be reconciled with God and with humanity. And what's being shaped is the local church. And we make this practically and tangibly visible in the way we live our lives together that's bookmarked by the symbol of baptism. We were celebrating that people recognize it's not about me and religion. It's not those things. It's actually about my life dying because God needs to be supreme rising up and living that way, and every time we gather, uh, depending on your tradition, we do it once a month, we're reminding ourselves, are we living the life of the redeemed community of humanity? That's what these things mean together. The gospel is being proclaimed out there. The sign that we participate in reflect the reality that we're living these transformed lives radically different from the world. Let me conclude by this, saying this, friends. You watch the same news I watch, and I cannot think of a time that the world needs the church more than it does now. I mean, I know the world certainly does not think that, but just like a, we need, the world needs a, like we need a shot of antibodies from a good doctor, the world needs the church. But the world does not need a church where everyone simply wants a couple of how-tos to make their already good lives function more smoothly. The world does not need a church where we're more concerned about getting our spiritual fix, where we're concerned about our, our buildings and furnishings and our wonderful programs and our concerts and events. That's not what the world needs. The world radically needs a church that is full of sinners who remember that they've been saved by grace. The world radically needs a church full of saints who remember they are sustained by grace. A church full of redeemed, rehabilitated, and repentant, racists, egoists, narcissists, adulterers, perverts, abusers, neglectors, the proudly arrogant, the full of themselves, the self-confident, all laid low at the foot of the cross, humbled that they could even stand in its presence. That's what the world needs. That's the kind of church the world needs where all lives matter and no supremacy matters except the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Only a church understanding that they're called out of the world to live for another can be that witness. And only the church has been mandated to proclaim the gospel that the world desperately needs because only the church embodies the gospel. 
And that's why we have to keep coming back to recognizing what are we doing as a church? What are we as a church? What is our identity? What sustains us? Because the only thing that will sustain humanity in, a, in the world that we're living in is people recognizing that it's not about us, that we are the creatures that desperately need a creator, and that way has been made by the creator. And we gather together reminding ourselves of that truth, and we take a communion and say, that's right, we're living this life. The world needs us, friends, but the world needs us to recognize we're on mission and not get caught up or diverted by anything else, yeah? Let's pray that, that we live that way to God's glory and the good of His people. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for just the, the, the manifold wisdom of the gospel. We could spend hours and hours and hours, and we still wouldn't scratch the surface of how our lives can be transformed and rearranged, how you make sense of reality because of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget that. Forgive us when our hearts get gripped by other loves. Bring us back to you. You are jealous for our affections and our love because you know when we are sold out for you, we flourish and thrive. And Father, we pray that you continue to pursue your people, pursue us, that we would have no eyes, no affection for any other except for you and your glory. Help us to love as Christ loved, and we know we can because your Spirit is within us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.